Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club. I don't know about you, but I've had quite a difficult time getting to grips with this week's play, Troilus and Cressida. It's rather long and it's rather wordy, and for my money, it's maybe the most inaccessible of all of Shakespeare's plays. For all that, it has some brilliant moments, and I'm glad to have spent the time with it. During my first year at university, I somehow thought it would be a good idea to write an essay about this play for a theatre history class. As I remember, the essay was more an exercise in creative writing than in historical research. I somehow felt it was appropriate to write a series of letters in blank verse from Shakespeare to Anne Hathaway describing the development of this play of all plays. I suppose it's a testament to how difficult this play is that I felt I'd rather write an essay in blank verse than read the play. I haven't managed to bring myself to find that essay. I wrote it 20 years ago this year. My goodness, 20 already. But I dread to think what I might have said in it. I got a pretty good mark, for sheer audacity, I suppose, but I'll leave it another few years before I go looking for it. Clearly I'm still at it, avoiding this weird, sour play. It takes place in the seventh year of the Trojan War, and it is introduced by a prologue. From the very beginning, there's a feeling of who cares to this play. Even this prologue, our introduction to its world, says, Like or find fault, do as your pleasures are. Now good or bad, tis but the chance of war. In the folio, the play is listed among the comedies, but it is known to us nowadays as a problem play. The problem plays are the plays that tend to burst out of any particular genre, refusing to fit in any particular box. Troilus and Cressida is the most problematic of the lot. It's called a comedy, but it's not very funny. It's not really tragic or a tragedy, since it ends before the war that it's describing is over. And it's not really a history play, since its actions are closer to myth than any historical fact. So, you'd have quite a hard time categorising it in any of the genres we tend to use for Shakespeare's plays. Much later in his career, we speak of a fourth genre, romance, but this absolutely does not apply to this play. Troilus and Cressida is one of three plays that are named after a central couple, Romeo and Juliet, Antony and Cleopatra, and Troilus and Cressida. If nothing else, both lovers in this play are alive at the end. The other two couples die. All four of those lovers kill themselves and wind up becoming famous for their amorous intensity. Romeo and Juliet remain the ne plus ultra of loving couples, for absolutely no logical reason other than the intensity of their feelings, beautifully expressed but hardly sustainable. Antony and Cleopatra we will come to later in our journey. Troilus and Cressida get the extraordinary opportunity to describe themselves as a kind of a myth, even as they seem to live through their own experience. Their names would have been reasonably well known to Shakespeare's audience. Geoffrey Chaucer had written a version of their story only about 200 years earlier, and there were numerous translations of Homer's Iliad in circulation, most famous perhaps by Chapman. The Trojan War was well known, even Christopher Marlowe mentions Helen of Troy in Dr. Faustus. Troilus the lover, Cressida the faithless woman, and Pandarus her interfering uncle were already rather like household names. 
Shakespeare gives them an intriguing scene together, all three of them, in which they seem to be almost aware that they are famous characters rather than just people. It ends with Pandora's awkwardly pointing out the possibility of them being known for their actions for all time. If ever you prove false one to another, since I have taken such pains to bring you together, let all pitiful goers between be called to the world's end after my name. Call them all panders. Let all constant men be Troilus's, all false women Cressids, and all brokers between panders. This proves all too true. Certainly a pander with a small p became just such a go-between, albeit for women and their clients rather than their lovers. In Pericles, there's a character called Pander who likewise lives up to the name and the profession. As for the lovers, they have their brief moment of passion and then the play conspires to separate them. Shakespeare does try to justify Cressida's choice to go with Diomedes, effectively betraying Troilus, by making it seem like she doesn't have a choice at all. It's a bleak depiction of how women can be traded and treated in war. Indeed, when Cressida arrives at the Greek camp, the men line up and take turns kissing her, and things don't seem to get better after that. Troilus observes his love's choice to betray him for her own survival, and he is left unbearably disillusioned until the end. Troilus and Cressida aren't the most famous names in the play. It's full of all the great characters from the Trojan War. The play has a very large cast of characters, about 30 of them, almost all of them named, almost all of them familiar from the Iliad. If you've ever read the Iliad, you'll know that Homer was very fond of giving characters little epithets, so Athena is always bright-eyed, Odysseus is always cunning, and so on. As a result, perhaps we might have an opinion or two about the characters of the story, but Shakespeare seems determined to overthrow these expectations. The characters of his version are recognisable, but we see the very worst of them. Achilles is petulant and lazy and cheats at the end, letting his thugs massacre Hector and then claiming the kill. Agamemnon is verbose and tiresome, Menelaus is an idiot, and Odysseus, here Ulysses, is still cunning, but shows a manipulative cruelty far removed from the engaging trickster who is heroic enough for us to stay with him through ten years of the Odyssey. These Greeks are not heroes at all. But then, in England, that's maybe not a surprising twist of the plot. Civilization continues to move westwards. The eventual aftermath of the conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans was the foundation of Rome by Aeneas. Some generations later, another Trojan descendant, Brute, was reputed to have gone north and given his name to Britain, eventually. Troy was very much associated with England, so it's not an accident that the Trojans in the play are rather more interesting and sympathetic than the Greeks. Hector is the most heroic of an unheroic bunch, and Shakespeare solidifies his reputation by having him die at the end of the play. The treatment of Hector's body is one of the most shameful acts by any Greek in Homer's Iliad. The raging Achilles drags his body around the walls of Troy in vengeance for the death of his beloved Patroclus. This event just about squeezes in at the very end of the play. This is in Act 5 with ten scenes to get through. We all know that the Greeks will win the Trojan War, thanks to a trick from that cunning Ulysses, but Troy will prevail, being reborn in Rome and again in England. 
The one famous Trojan that does not appear in Troilus and Cressida is Hecuba. Evidently, Shakespeare felt he had enough named female roles in the play, and given that Cressida, Andromache, Helen and Cassandra all have speaking parts, perhaps he felt that he didn't have much space to include Hecuba in the goings-on of the story. This is in stark contrast to Hamlet, which he wrote probably right before he wrote Troilus and Cressida. Hamlet also features the Trojan War in the player's speech of Aeneas' tale to Dido. At that point, we hear about the very end of the Trojan War, when, appropriately, we hear of a young man killing an older king as an act of vengeance for his father's death. Hecuba is memorably presented, she the Moblet Queen, but she doesn't get to show up in Shakespeare's Trojan play. Maybe he liked her too much to deposit her in this ugly, disillusioned wasteland. Of all of Shakespeare's plays, this one has the scantest performance history. We don't really know if it was written to be staged at the Globe, although some readers like to suggest that it was written for performance at the Inns of Court. This would make a lot of sense, since it's by far the most intellectual, argumentative and verbal of Shakespeare's plays. Everything is to do with the word, and one of the play's main operators is the strategist Ulysses. Words and argument are even more important than action and even character. By the end of the play, we really don't feel like we've gotten to know any of the characters the way we do get to know Juliet or Shylock or, of course, Hamlet. There's one character that does seem to shout louder than the rest, and that's Thersites, a minor Greek soldier that Shakespeare allows to comment and observe throughout the play. He is so sour, so nasty and so negative that we hardly come away liking him, but he's so resolutely himself that we certainly remember him. Quite often in these podcasts, I've been drawn to think about the context swirling around outside the plays, and the possibility of how a context makes the play more interesting. That possible date for the Merry Wives of Windsor, the possible political threads woven through King John, and so on. In an England whose fortunes were dependent on the country's devotion and loyalty to a single woman, we might wonder what it would mean to stage a story about the Trojan War, a war that was fought over the face that launched a thousand ships. Is there a connection to be made? I'm not sure. Likening Queen Elizabeth to Helen of Troy, or rather Helen of Sparta, would of course have been flattering, since Helen was the most beautiful woman in the world, but it might have been rather dangerous. As Thersites, that great truth-teller, comments, Here is such patchery, such juggling and such knavery. All the argument is a cuckold and a whore. Now, the cuckold and the whore are Menelaus and his wife Helen. If there's a connection between Elizabeth and Helen, it's not at all flattering if we are being told that Helen is a whore. For a much more detailed exploration of how Troilus and Cressida might be saying things that we no longer recognise or appreciate, have a look at Claire Asquith's book Shadow Play. It's a very exuberant exploration of how Shakespeare's plays are full of Catholic messages, and Troilus and Cressida gets a particularly busy re-reading that includes Philip of Spain, the Pope, various priests, and of course Essex, Elizabeth's favourite. I don't know how convinced I am by the entire argument, 
but it's certainly fun to read how all of the play's complicated rhetoric and endless talking might actually have been about a lot more than the topless towers of Troy. We are exactly halfway through our reading of the plays of the folio, and as a result, I'm going to take a week off next week. We'll call it a midterm break, as it were. After such an exuberant progress through all these plays thus far, it's no harm to have a little pause. This will also give you two full weeks to read the next play on the list, which is, unapologetically, Timon of Athens. If we're reading them all, we're reading them all. Bear in mind that this is as close to a play about the plague as Shakespeare ever wrote. And if you can't get enough of the Greeks and their eastern enemies, I have a new project to share with you as well. This year marks two and a half thousand years since the Battle of Salamis, a decisive Greek victory that is described in the oldest surviving Greek tragedy, the Persians. When I'm not thinking about Shakespeare, I'm probably thinking about Greek tragedy, and as part of Dublin Theatre Festival this year, I'm creating a new podcast series about this play. I commissioned an amazing Irish-language poet to translate Aeschylus's play into Irish, and so the podcast will explore how to approach Europe's oldest play in Europe's oldest spoken language. I'll be discussing it with some world experts, and there will be music and performance by some amazing Irish actors, singers and musicians. You can find out more about it and hear a trailer for the whole project on a new website I've put together. Just as Shakespeare played around with three world titles, I have likewise done so, and this one is persiansthepodcast.com. I'll put a link to it on the one you'll probably already know, thehamletpodcast.com, and I hope you'll tune in. It's looking like it's going to be very special indeed. In the meantime, enjoy the week off. I hope you're staying safe and surviving this crazy year, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.